Hi everyone! Word of warning, there will be curse words in today's episode. Well, not curse words exactly, but definitely blasphemy. You will be hearing the names of other gods, and not just other gods, but other gods that the Israelites worshipped. So when the pandemic is over, eventually, and you find yourself going to dinner parties with biblical scholars, which is the definition of a good time, and you want to rile things up a bit and have some fun, just throw out the question to them of when did monotheism begin? Most of us have probably been taught that monotheism, the belief in only one God, was the defining feature of Judaism from the beginning. That first commandment Moses received on Mount Sinai, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And clearly, one of the great legacies of Judaism, via the Israelite tradition, is monotheism. But just when it got started and how is unclear, which doesn't stop scholars from having heated debates. We determined last episode that the Israelites were originally Canaanites. At some point before about 1200 BCE, they split off from the Canaanites to form their own branch. In the last few episodes, we've been painting a picture of who the Israelites were and where they came from. So here's the point of today's episode. What set Israelite identity apart from Canaanite identity was that the Israelites adopted their own national god, whose name was, and still is, Yahweh. And yet, being Canaanites, the Israelites also recognized the Canaanite gods, plural. So what happened? How did we go from many gods to one? Who is Yahweh, and where did he come from? Well, in essence, Yahweh stuck out his thumb, hitched a ride to Canaan, and found the Israelites to hang out with. That's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people, nobody can do everyone our share to redeem the world. If we were to go back to the ancient world, much of it would look pretty familiar to us. Humans would look the same, of course, and we would recognize architecture and clothing and tools and even your basic daily pattern of life. But there was one thing that would feel very different. In contrast to our own times, in the ancient world, we would find gods everywhere, all the time. In every home, walking around the street, out in the fields, every whim of nature, from sunshine to rainstorms, would carry the presence of the gods. They were an ever-present part of daily life, and very much of the living world. They had names and personalities and jobs and emotions and drama, and every people had their own gods, from Enlil for the Sumerians, to Marduk for the Babylonians, to Ashur for the Assyrians, and Osiris for the Egyptians. The Canaanites had their pantheon of gods, too. In 1929 of our era, a peasant farmer tilling his field along the coast of northern Syria stumbled across what appeared to be an old tomb. I mean, there's no way I would have gone down there alone, and the farmer didn't either, he reported to the authorities. By the time the archaeologists were finished with the site, they had uncovered a great city that had been lost to history for nearly 3,000 years. Called Ugarit, it was like finding Los Angeles buried in the sand for three millennia. It was a major port and power center, complete with a giant royal palace, linking the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian, and Near Eastern worlds. Amongst the extensive discoveries at Ugarit were archives of several thousand texts that revealed the world of Canaanite religion and mythology. These Ugarit texts gave us a new and deeper understanding of the various gods, 
their dramas, and their connections with the Israelites and their national god, Yahweh, although the Israelites didn't arrive until centuries later. In one tale unearthed from Ugarit, the Canaanite king is without a son and heir. He prays to the god Baal for one. After seven offerings to the temple, the high god El gives permission to Baal to fulfill the wish. A son, Akat, is born. Akat is given a special bow, but a goddess wanted it and promised immortality and sexual favors if Akat gave it to her. He refused, so the goddess had him killed. When the king discovered Akat's body, he had him buried by the Sea of Galilee, and Akat's sister vowed revenge. It was there that this text, known as the Epic of Akat, abruptly ends. Now, hundreds of years later, a similar story, at least in theme, emerged in the Israelite origin tale. Abraham and Sarah, the first couple of Jewish history, hail from Mesopotamia, but make their way to Canaan on God's promise that they would bless the earth with a new nation. But Sarah is unable to give birth, throwing the entire promise into doubt. Abraham prays to God to bless Sarah with a child, and on God's promise, sure enough, a year later, despite their advanced age, a son, Isaac, is born to them, the second forefather of the Jewish people. These are not identical stories, of course, but this tale and others seem to show the influence of Canaanite literature and religious tradition within the emerging Israelite culture. It's another reminder that Israelite culture was both a literate one, as well as originally Canaanite, and had access to all kinds of literature swirling around the Near East in ancient times. And being Canaanite, the early Israelites also had the Canaanite gods, the polytheistic pagan gods of nature. For our purposes, the main one to know is El. And El means two things. One, he is the Canaanite high god, the pagan patriarch, the creator god who fathered all the other deities. And two, the word El is a title meaning god, sort of like referring to someone as the president instead of using their name. And in the early years, even while they were getting to know their national god Yahweh, the Israelites held on to the pagan El as the chief god. How do we know this? Because they told us. In the Hebrew Bible, God is referred to in either one of two ways. The first is by the name Yahweh, the Israelite national god who we'll get to in a moment. But the other way, in thousands of references, is by El. E-L. The next time you're in synagogue or listening to a Jewish prayer or reading the Bible in Hebrew, keep a lookout for the word El and its variations. El Shaddai, El Elyon, and especially Elohim. Wherever you see that variation on El, the biblical writer is telling you, hey, I'm referencing the Canaanite version of God here. The forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all worshipped the god they knew as El. It was El who promised to bless Abraham and Sarah with a new nation of people in Canaan. El who told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And here's another example. You may know the infamous story of the golden calf, that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, the Israelites down below rebelled, melting down their gold to make a calf to worship instead. Well... Guess who was represented in Canaanite mythology by the image of a calf? El. And perhaps most significantly, just in case you're feeling skeptical about this whole El thing, the Israelites named themselves after El. The story is that Jacob wrestled with a being throughout the night, and in the morning, having prevailed, 
God assigned him a new name, Israel, Isra, and El. We don't quite have a definition for Isra, but it probably means to persevere or to struggle. Jews translate the name Israel to mean one who wrestles with God. God, in this case, being called by the Canaanite El. Israel. Whoa! When I first learned all this stuff in grad school, my mind was completely blown. But we shouldn't be that surprised. We've already seen how other Near Eastern cultures and traditions seeped into the Israelite one. So it shouldn't come as a shock that the Israelites, who were essentially Canaanites, worship the Canaanite gods and preserve that memory down through their culture. And it might have all stayed right there, with the god El as the chief Israelite god amongst many other gods. But somewhere along the way, the Israelites met a new god they liked better, a new kid from the outside who just moved to town. And his name was Yahweh. Let's leave El and the Canaanites in Canaan for a moment and talk about another part of the world, a place called Midian. Midian is a territory just south of Canaan. Today it would be the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia, right near the Jordanian and Israeli borders up against the Red Sea. A couple of ancient Egyptian texts make cryptic references to a people called the Shasu of Yahweh, who lived in and around Midian, around the time that the Israelites are coming onto the scene. The Shasu of Yahweh are described as a semi-nomadic people, kind of like the Bedouin today. And to make a long story short, there is good historical evidence to show that Yahweh originally came from Midian, these Shasu people, although we don't know why or how he was developed as a god there. No other ancient peoples list a Yahweh amongst their pantheon, so the Midianites probably developed Yahweh all on their own. We know anyway that he wasn't Canaanite, since the Canaanites had El, the question is, how did a Midianite god make it to the Israelites in Canaan? It turns out there was someone who spent a good long time in Midian, and who may have been the guy to make Yahweh's move possible. His name was Moses. Yes, that Moses. Now I know, there's no historical evidence to suggest that he was a real person, and this is certainly a flaw, or at least a question in this theory, but if he was real, it would make a lot of sense. And here's why. A key part of Moses' biography takes place in Midian. He flees there after killing an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. He was taken in by a man named either Reuel or Jethro. The Bible records both names. And Moses marries his daughter, Zipporah, and together they have a son. Moses settles into life as a shepherd for his father-in-law, but there in Midian is a mountain called Horeb, and it is on Mount Horeb that Moses has a famous encounter with the burning bush. From the burning bush, God tells Moses to go to Egypt, free the Israelite slaves, and crucially, bring them back here to this Mount Horeb place in Midian. But Moses protests, who am I that I should go, he asks God. Jewish tradition interprets this question as a sign of Moses' humility, the best man for the job, after all, is often the one who doesn't want it, and it's a really good interpretation. And there's a historical interpretation we can offer as well. Moses may have meant the question literally. If Moses was a Midianite, living in Midian, 
with a Midianite family and worshiping the Midianite god whom he's talking to out of this burning bush, then it's a pretty fair question to wonder what the Israelite slaves in Egypt have anything to do with me. Well, God gives him an answer. I am the God of your father, as well as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those Israelite slaves are my people, and I'm sending you to free them and bring them back to the land of Canaan with a stopover at this mountain. In other words, God says, I'm the God of both of you, Moses, the Midianites and the Israelites. And that's because the Hebrew Bible tells us something else. After Abraham's wife Sarah dies, Abraham marries another woman named Keturah. And Abraham and Keturah have six sons together, and one of them, hold on to your hats, is named Midian. In other words, boom, that's the connection. God is claiming to be the God for Abraham's line by Keturah, the Midianites, and his line by Sarah, the Israelites. Wowzers. Okay, I know, I'm hitting you with a lot. Grab a stiff drink because we're still going. Okay, so what happens next? Well, we know the story. Moses heads off to Egypt, frees the slaves, and sets out across the desert for Canaan. But wait a second, wait, wait a second, wait a second. What's this business about Mount Horeb in Midian? I thought they go to Mount Sinai in, you know, Sinai. Well, yes they do, but I'm here to tell you that Sinai and Horeb are two names for the same mountain, just written by two different authors, in which the Bible situates not where we think it is in the Sinai Peninsula, but instead in Midian. What I'm telling you is that the slaves who left Egypt first went to Mount Sinai slash Horeb in Midian, and then went on to Canaan. Because remember our theory about the Exodus. It wasn't the Israelites who all fled Egypt, but a small group of people who came to Canaan were absorbed into the Israelite people, given the name Levites, and whose story about the Exodus became the accepted Israelite narrative. Do you see where I'm going with this? If this group of people fled Egypt, stopped over in Midian, and then went on to Canaan, all the while led by this Midianite guy named Moses, then it is entirely possible, even plausible, that they brought the Midianite god Yahweh with them. And just as the Israelites slowly absorbed this Exodus story, they also slowly absorbed this god Yahweh. And indeed, the Hebrew Bible tries to clear this all up. In the book of Exodus, God tells Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yahweh. In other words, the writers of the Bible are saying, look, we know this is confusing, but we want to make it clear that before the Exodus we had El, but after that stopover in Midian with Moses, we also got Yahweh. After all, why tell this whole big story about Moses and Midian if there wasn't a point to it? The only purpose this story serves for the Israelites is to explain how Yahweh got from Midian, which was not Canaanite territory, to the Israelites who were in Canaanite territory. Yahweh hitched a ride with Moses and his group of freed slaves. Okay, 
Maybe you're still skeptical that Moses was a real person and this story seems fishy. That's okay. We can still suggest another way to explain how Yahweh from Midian ended up in Canaan with the Israelites. Midian and Canaan were not too far apart, and there would have been plenty of traveling back and forth, especially for trade. The Hebrew Bible records this kind of connection. It's not at all hard to imagine Yahweh grabbing a ride with a Midianite trader, heading up north to Canaan, and slowly over time, as the Midianite traders and his Israelite customers mingled, becoming ever more known and familiar to the Israelites. But either way, we're left with a conundrum. The Israelites had El, because that's who the Canaanites had, and the Israelites were Canaanites. But now Yahweh has arrived, and the Israelites want to put him on the team too. So we've got two gods, when monotheism tells us there's only supposed to be one. So now what? The Israelites here are practicing what we call henotheism. Here is the god I worship, but I know there are plenty of other gods out there on a lower level, and I'm cool with that. And closely connected to henotheism is another fancy word, monolatry. I only worship this one god, but I don't deny that there are other gods who other people worship. The difference between henotheism and monolatry is slight, and in both cases you accept that there are other gods. And this would seem to argue in favor of what we call the evolutionary hypothesis of monotheism. And this was developed in the late 1800s by the German biblical scholar Julius Wellhausen who argued that the road to monotheism began with polytheism, and then moved to monolatry, and then later became the full-fledged monotheism that we have today. I won't get into all the particulars of this argument now, because we're going to see it play out through the rest of the season. The drive towards monotheism is a huge part of what turned the Israelites into Jews. Now, Wellhausen's theory that monotheism was an evolution was challenged in the 1940s by an American archaeologist named William Albright. Albright argued that monotheism was thrown on like a light switch by the revolution that Moses brought to Israel. In his view, Moses was a real person, and his impact was in getting the Israelites to make this sudden shift into wholeheartedly adopting Yahweh as the one and only God, and then severely punishing dissenters who clung to their polytheistic or henotheistic ways. From these two overarching theories, scholars have debated endlessly about just when monotheism was adopted by the Israelites. Was it super early on in their history, or not until much later with the Babylonian exile in the 500s BCE? My sense, and someone can correct me on this, is that most scholars today would come down on the side of Wellhausen's evolutionary theory. As we'll see this season, the effort to ensure the primacy of Yahweh was a constant battle, marked by two steps forward, one step back. Yet, while it would be incorrect to say that the Israelites adopted monotheism early in their history, it would also be incorrect to say that they didn't think about it, and didn't start working towards what became monotheism from early on. Because what the Israelites did when they had both El and Yahweh was a stroke of brilliance, the Israelites merged Yahweh and El, gave Yahweh all the traits of El, dropped the El, and henceforth just went with Yahweh. We can see the early stages of this merger happening in the Hebrew Bible. A passage in the book of Deuteronomy reads, When Elion gave nations their home and set divisions of man, he fixed the boundaries of peoples in relation to Israel's numbers. For Yahweh's portion is his people. El still seems to be on top, 
But Yahweh is clearly the lead God for his people, the Israelites, they are his portion. To mix another metaphor, and this only works because I'm a total nerd when it comes to airplanes and aviation, it's like when United Airlines merged with Continental Airlines a bunch of years ago. They dropped the name Continental, but kept the Continental paint scheme on the planes. And so what ends up happening now is that Yahweh and El become the same God. We go back to that line from the book of Exodus, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name Yahweh. Now, however, now that you all know my name Yahweh, we're going with me. So this was a lot of information, but don't worry. This is a theme we're going to keep coming back to because it preoccupied the Israelites. How do we ensure that Yahweh stays on top? How do we drive towards a belief system in which we only need Yahweh and not any other gods? We'll dig a little deeper into who exactly Yahweh was, or at least who the Israelites thought Yahweh was to them, and how that name, Yahweh, came about. As a whole, this process is going to take some six or seven hundred years to play out, and today was about trying to understand where Yahweh came from. Because the point of that is to explain how these Israelites began to see themselves as a separate identity from the Canaanites. It was a religious separation. So things are coalescing here in Canaan, and we're getting ready to move a bit beyond the era around the year 1200, where we've been hanging out these last few episodes. The Israelites, in adopting Yahweh as a national god, have made a separation from the Canaanites, taking on this new identity. They pulled in other groups of people who weren't necessarily Canaanites, like the escaped slaves from Egypt, who may also have brought Yahweh in from Midian. The Israelites are living in the hill country of central Canaan, which today corresponds to northern Israel, the West Bank, the area around Jerusalem, and down into the Negev desert a little. And in the meantime, they've managed to more or less gentrify the Canaanites out, or to absorb those who stayed. So next episode, we're going to pull it all together. Who were the Israelites? What did it mean for them to worship this merged god, Yahweh? How did they form their national story, which became the Jewish story? And then we'll be ready to move on into the history of the Israelites in the land of Israel. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation of any amount to help keep it going. Thank you so much to the generous people who have already donated. It is deeply, deeply appreciated. And if you've donated, you can see your name listed on my website at www.jewautonode.com. Just head to the donate page at the top right. My email is jewautonodepodcast at gmail.com. Whichever god or gods you are worshiping today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.